Welcome to the Center for New American Security's National Security Startups podcast series, hosted by Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program, Ben Fitzgerald. Welcome, everyone, to uh, another National Security Startups podcast. Uh, We're joined today by Ben Riley. Ben, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you. It's good to be here. So Ben is recently retired from the Pentagon. I need to stop and congratulate you on, (laughs) on being able to be outside of that building for a little bit now. Um, and is, is currently working at the Georgia Tech Research Institute. Um, prior to his time at, at Georgia Tech and pr- prior to his time as a civilian in the Pentagon, Ben had a great career in the Navy. I spent a lot of time in, in P3s as a tactical NFO. Um, I should also say in full disclosure that Ben funded a number of projects for the company I used to run, Noetic. Um, so I, I, I like to think that I maintain some impartiality here, but, um, but, but I'm very grateful for for Ben's support to, to my work over the years. So Ben, uh, let's just jump straight in and, and uh, I've got a few questions for you and we'll have a conversation here. Okay. So you've invested DOD funds in a range of interesting startups and other companies over many years. Could you give our listeners just a brief summary of, of your background and some of the work that you did and, and the rationale for, for it? Sure, as you point out, uh, Ben, I, was, uh, I, I spent almost 30 years in the Navy I started out as an enlisted man, uh, sonar technician, and then uh, got commissioned as an officer and took my ASW work from being enlisted into the P3 community. Um, I, my last job in the Navy as a captain uh, it was, a, was an assignment to the Office of Secretary of Defense in Acquisition and Technology, mm-hmm. and what was called Advanced Technology at the time, and it was the program uh, under Larry Lynn, who then became the head of DARPA, that went on to become uh, what's called the Advanced Concept Technology Demonstration. Yep. And I was uh, I was a military deputy to Larry, and uh, I, I I learned a lot uh, of what I later took on to subsequent parts of my career uh, from that particular tour with with uh, Larry and uh, and working with him and getting insights into companies and. Uh, where that they thought he uh, he thought and others in the Pentagon thought that department ought to be focused in terms of technologies and the like and so uh, when I had a chance to do other things and I came back as a civilian I, I said okay I, I saw all the things they did in that program uh, and I uh, said okay they did well here they could have done better here um, and uh, took those lessons learned and applied them in what I did that's later. right the so so from your perspective, what were some of the more interesting or impactful investments that you made in, in your time in the Pentagon? Um, I, I'll highlight just two. Uh, we we did a lot, uh, but uh, one of my uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes when we would come up with new projects or new ideas was people would say, "Well, we don't have a requirement for that, <laughs> uh, and uh, we don't need that." And I recall. Uh, uh, hearing Sir Michael Howard talk one time at the Army War College in about 1995, uh, he made a quote um, that uh, the only thing harder than putting a new idea on the mind of a military man is taking the old one out. Yeah. And he was actually citing uh, uh, Little Heart. Uh, uh, Little Heart, exactly, uh, who made that quote much earlier. So uh, when people would I'd sit there in a meeting or trying to convince some, somebody of some idea and they'd say that, and we don't have a need for that or whatever that comment was and I would think of that quote and yeah, just absolutely. sort of say, okay, got it, proceed on. But but I think one of the big ones uh, when, when I got to OSD, uh, as still in the Navy, was the Predator unmanned air vehicle. And we had that as one of our first ACTDs. 
And then Larry and I spent a lot of time walking around the Pentagon, talking to people about it, uh, and people say, oh, it's interesting, or whatever. Um, I think I could probably find uh, five or six senior people who we talked to out of many, 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 probably several hundred who thought it was a good idea. Yeah. And uh, in about 1996, I don't have the exact date, uh, we were at military people in peacekeeping in Bosnia, and uh, we were directed by Secretary Perry to deploy the thing to Bosnia. And uh, we said, well, it's not ready, and the Secretary said, deploy it. And the boss kept saying, it's not ready, and he finally, he said, yes, sir, and it deployed to Bosnia. And it went, went up into the North 40, I call it the North 40, where nothing was happening. Yep. And uh, ultimately, one of the one of these vehicles crashed over there, and, and uh, I immediately got a call from somebody on the joint staff that said, see, we told you it wouldn't work. Yeah. And and the lesson there is you got to, to me, the lesson was, even in the face of resistance, you somehow have to put your foot, get your nose under the tent or your foot in the door or whatever term you want to use. Yeah. And, uh, and, and to get the thing going, you, you know you're going to fail. You know it's not going to work completely right. But if you look at where we are today with UAVs and where we were 20 years ago, um, none of that would have happened unless I think Secretary Perry had sort of forced us to move that thing into an operational environment where it could fail or learn or whatever the outcome would be. So that that was one I think that was was uh, sort of impactful to me. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one uh, I'll cite was uh, biometrics. Uh, and this time I was a civilian in, in OSD, and uh, we were looking at the IED problem, the IEDs, this is sort of late 2003, early 2004, and, uh, and we came upon biometrics as a potential solution uh, to, or potential, not solution, I should say, but aid in tracking down insurgents. Uh, and, uh, and so we started uh, doing this, uh, and at one point, uh, Somebody uh, came up to me, a senior guy came up to me and said, you guys, we don't need this biometrics. We, this, this is police work. Yeah. We're soldiers. Yeah. And in fact, we were in the middle of an insurgency. And in my view, one of the objectives of an insurgency is to establish the rules of law. Mm -hmm. So whether you like it a lot, a lot of what you're doing, I think, becomes uh, police work. But we had, uh, we had a fair degree of resistance to biometrics. I mean, there were, there were pockets of... People who were very interested in pushing it, but uh, at more senior levels, uh, there was also resistance, and so it took a lot of time and hard work uh, to build that infrastructure to enable you to collect data, analyze it, share the data with others, uh, not only within uh, DOD but uh, in other parts of the government. And uh, oh, oh, by the way, be, sh be sure you're complying with various rules, policy guidance, and all. Today we do biometrics, we do a range of other, not only fingerprints, which we started out with, but a range of other capabilities, uh, do DNA and the like, but you had to start again, you had to start somewhere, yeah. and again, you found uh, a fair degree of resistance to the initial idea. Once we caught our first guy, it went from, we don't need that, to why don't we have this? Always. It's always that, so, yeah. We never need it, and then we don't have enough. So, uh, you know, but it took time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and so you have to be... The lesson to me is you have to be tolerant, you have to take time, and you have to realize the level of resistance that you're going to encounter. You know, that, that quote, the only thing hard to put a new on 
difference to the military. <laughs> Any of the lessons they've learned, they've learned the hard way. Absolutely. And with blood and, and, and loss of life and loss of equipment and you know, many, many bad things. And so you, you've got to appreciate their skepticism. Mm-hmm. And you gotta you gotta respect their skepticism. So it's not it's not a one way street. It's a two way street. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I recall many years ago I, I asked you a question when I hadn't known you for very long, which was um, how do you make your investments? How do you make decisions about that? And your 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 reply to me at the time was that you read widely. <laughs> True. Uh, which was actually a very good answer. I've realized in hindsight. Um, but, but I would just be interested for, for, for our listeners, how did you go about making deci- decisions about what to invest in or not? Well, a couple of things. Uh, one, um, one is, is you build a new capability or a new technology. And often we have, we have people coming with a problem. They need an answer right now. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we scurry around. But when you have an entirely new capability, whether you know it or not, it's going to take you a number of years to get that capability out the door. Uh, let's say two years. And so by the time you get that, you reach that two-year point, the capability is ready to go. It might, it, whatever the problem was, might have gone away. Yeah. Particularly in, in many of the dynamic environments in which our military guys have operated in the past 15 plus years. So it causes me to think, try to think ahead about what's coming down the road. So I do read widely, uh, read both history and I read um, a lot of different papers and things. I read stuff from CNAS now. Uh, I read uh, uh, National Intelligence Council Global mm-hmm. Trends. Mm-hmm. And I get a weekly report from the World Economic Forum. I, I'm always online looking at something um, and I'm trying to figure out where we're going. Over time, we've had many, many companies, many labs, many government organizations come to us and they got some new technology or new idea and they'll put it in front of me and say, that's a transformational technology, or that's a Everything's a game disruptive or yeah, game, yeah, whatever yeah. the term of the day is. And, and, and I tell people I look at the technology and the technology looks at me and nothing happens. Yep. So what I have to do is put it in a context. How might I use this mm-hmm. thing, whatever it is? And, and and so, therefore, I need to kind of have some understanding of where the future is. And I frankly then say, guess, not, not analyze, but guess where you think the tech, where you think whatever this capability that you have in front of you might fit in. Um, you mentioned when you were at Noetic, you, you know, we sponsored some work with you. And one of them that you will recall was um, uh, the evolved irregular threat yep. uh, that was looking at uh, non state groups and Yep. And what kind of capabilities would those groups have? And it's it's those kind of things that really help to inform me and hopefully inform us of what of what the issue here. Mm-hmm. Where should we be what should we be thinking about? Where should we be investing? You know, what what should we have? And it might be invest to deploy right away, or it might be invest in some cases to put on the shelf. Yeah. But at least start when I say start the conversation on whatever the topic is. So um, that's kind of uh, it's kind of guessing into the future. Uh, I think retrospectively, I think we have a pretty good batting average. Or yeah, absolutely. Uh, that doesn't mean we're always going to be that good in the future. But, no. But I think we did we did do some pretty good guessing, and uh, so that's that reading to me is. I got a bunch of stuff in my briefcase right here that right. all needs to be read. <laughs> so so. Um, 
in that in that context, as you're making those investments, you worked with a pretty interesting range of startups right. um, at very early stages. I still recall uh, the, 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 the work you did with Palantir early on, those kind of things. So from your perspective, um, what value do you believe that DoD provides to startups and, and, and why should startups be be working with the Department of Defense? What is it that, that, that makes startups appealing or interesting from your perspective? Uh, well, we were a very early investor in Palantir, uh, and we did that actually uh, in conjunction with a, a program at the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, we have a defense analysis curriculum that instructs uh, mid-grade officers, primarily from the special operations communities. On um, We have a curriculum that I think is a very fine one, and uh, we helped them set up what they call the Common Operational Research Environment which was a laboratory uh, to teach these officers how to use these advanced analytic tools. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the hopes in that was these guys, as I said, mostly mid-grade or 03 or 04, and one of the hopes in that was that some of these guys would grow to be senior officers and somewhere in the back of their head when they get to that more senior rank, they would understand and appreciate the value of these kind of tools mm-hmm. through hands-on experience. Um, so Palantir uh, was a startup at that time, and we we invested in Palantir to so that the Naval Postgraduate School could could have that as a tool to, to exercise. Uh, wasn't to say there are many other analytic tools out there at the time. Palantir was one mm-hmm. or one of the probably the early ones in that particular area. Uh, another one we invested in uh, was was called uh, the, the Liquid was from a company called Liquid Robotics mm-hmm. uh, that uh, people are familiar today. It's called Wave Glider, and uh, we we put some money into that actually through Incutel mm-hmm. and uh, worked uh, to get that into some of the DoD communities. In fact, I think my old office still has control over two of those vehicles that we have. Lent out to people to use and practice with as we have it in the field. So we 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 did a lot. Uh, the value I think uh, for what we were trying to do um, for with DoD was it, it certainly uh, provided us and provided others, hopefully in the Department of the Insight, into what was out there in the broader investment and technology community within the within the country. And, uh, and while you know, people often talk about the interface between you know, the Department of Defense and uh, many of these com- companies that are out there now, we, we might, might or might not, DOD might or might not be uh, the primary customer for these companies, but certainly uh, we can expand and work to expand uh, their technical base, uh, their customer base, and I think importantly, uh, we provide provide them with. I think some, the DOD, I should say, now provides them with some very very interesting problems to look at. Yeah. So I, I think there's a synergy in there that um, is probably worthwhile building on. And I think, you know, I, I'm not really familiar with DIUX. I left the Pentagon just as it was coming on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's was one of the objectives uh, with, with when I was as I was leaving and it was coming on. So it's one of the objectives of the program. So I think it's a good, it's a good avenue to do that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that it's important that we find find pathways in. Just one, one other thing you were t- you just talked about technical problems. 
one of the other things that, that I recall you spending a lot of time um, supporting was field testing and, and providing opportunities, whether that was at the Yuma Proving Grounds or other places where startups could, could come and, and test their capabilities and integrate it. Um, from my perspective, that's something that's pretty valuable to a startup. They wouldn't be able to do that in other, in, in other contexts. What were, what were your thoughts on, on the investments you made in that and, and what you got out of it, or what, sorry, what the DOD got out of it and what those startups got out of it? Well, uh, to go back in time, um, in late 2003, when the IED challenge kind of, kind of came to a head, uh, Dr. Ron Sega was the director of defense research and engineering, and I was working for him on this. And he, he had been tasked by the secretary, uh, deputy secretary Wolfowitz, I should say, in coming up with some funding with some some capabilities to address the problem, the challenge of IEDs. And so he, he did a lot of work on this. Uh, he went into the deputy with a, with a list of things to be funded, uh, and the deputy approved them. Uh, one of the things on that list he called rapid reaction new, uh, rapid, rapid reaction new solutions. Yeah. And uh, so the deputy's approval, he turned to me and said, here's uh, some money, go spend it on this problem. Yeah, and I tell people I went from being the most obscure to the most popular guy <laughs> in a 24-hour period with, with sort of un, unconnected money. Yeah, flexible money is a, is a big thing. And, and so as we, we looked at the problem and with some help from some people that we were working with, one of the things we came up with is you need, you, you need to be able to test whatever kind of capabilities you're looking at in a relevant environment. So we, uh, we, the first money we spent out of that money we got uh, from Dr. Sega was, was on building what we called, uh, first they called it the Joint Experimental Range Complex. Mm -hmm. That's what they named it when they're out working in the desert. Yes, smart. In August. Yeah. August. But uh, we built, we built a, a, what they called a little Baghdad, a city with mm -hmm. roads, and buildings, and other kinds of infrastructure. Uh, and we started testing that there. Ultimately, uh, JIDO came along. JIDO uh, had, of course, a bunch of assets and people. JIDO uh, expanded on it and made it into a significant test capability out there. We had several uh, city sites and uh, I think an Afghan site uh, called Jerk 1 and Jerk 2. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and uh, so we pretty much handed a lot of that work over to the JIDO. We did, however, within our OSD office, want maintain several test periods a year, not, not two, two week test periods, where we would invite uh, companies, uh, small, big uh, uh, government laboratories, DOE laboratories, others who thought they had an idea to come out and test them. And the, and the deal was, uh, we they would uh, they would come out uh, with their equipment on their nickel. Uh, we would provide them with infrastructure to test in that environment. Uh, we also had a test team who would help them set up the test, and then they would do the test over this two-week period, and then they're done. Uh, I, uh, JIDO, in its, in, its, in its responsibility of fielding, would often look at tests, or others would look at test results. Uh, it was an opportunity for program managers within various acquisition organizations to look at the testing. Um, we were not advocates for a program there. This was just company X or lab X was in the room thinking that they could do something. The analogy I always give is somebody thought that they could detect somebody in the desert at five miles. Yeah. And, and 
night and they'd go out and after two weeks in the desert and hot sand dust cold at night you know, they'd be lucky to get a mile yeah then then they'd go away and six months nine months later they're back and say now i can do five miles i can get three miles and so some some companies or laboratories came out incrementally based on lessons learned but i thought it was i thought it was important to offer this uh, we didn't charge them for the test it was we provided money uh, and we also importantly built an archive of tests and test results that we had. Yeah. And um, uh, we saw some tests that would fall flat on their face. Uh, we saw the tests that did exceptionally well. Uh, occasionally one that fell flat on its face would come back and say, now I got it. And, or they'd find somebody in the government who was an advocate for what they were doing and say, well, before you get too deep into it, read this report so you can make sure that this company has overcome whatever yeah. difficulty they encountered. I, I still remember being out uh, in 29 Palms, California for one of the um, experiments that, that, that you were working on. And uh, they had the biometrics fingerprint scanner out there. And the team that was running were like, oh, look, it's been ruggedized. It can deal with the, it can deal with the desert. Da, 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 da. And then we had, um, we were in the process of fake arresting a bunch of Marines. And uh, one of the NCOs bent down, put his hand into some water, some mud, some sand, spat on his hands rubbed it all over the place and then put his hands on the, on the, on the scanner and shut it down for 24 hours. And like, we hadn't tested for that. It was like, well, exactly. So, um, I think that, by the way, uh, Ben, I think that's still going on. I, I'm not, obviously not current. Yeah. But I think a lot of that's still going on. We, I, I never really kept a head count of how many companies or labs, but I no. think it was at least probably 300. Yeah. So that's a lot of people who went through that stuff and it, and it was always valuable, I think. Um, so, one of the challenges that, that I see is that, um, in, in my view, the Department of Defense actually does a reasonable job of scouting and investing in interesting technologies. Um, and, and it can often do interesting prototypes, but it really struggles to go from that early good work into production or getting integrated onto existing systems. You know, the, 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 uh, the so-called valley of death in the commercial world is, is like a grand canyon of death. For, for, for the DOD, you've lived through a lot of that. Um, and I know that you used to get measured on transition or not. Um, how did you work around that problem? And, and, and what do you think the department needs to do differently to, to improve that in the future? Well, well I think my, my views may be a bit different, but I think that the metric of transition is not a good one to build a program on. Yep. Um, I think I've told you this before, but I, my view, I first experienced it in the ACTD program um, and later in things that we did in, in OSD, in my subsequent tours in OSD, people people come in uh, from somewhere in the Pentagon, uh, GAO, over yeah. on the hill, and say, okay, don't give me a lot of facts. Just tell me how many programs you transition. What percent? <laughs> and I sat in a meeting one time and somebody said, 77%, everybody wrote it down. Nobody took the time to say, what does that mean? Yeah, I, I think, but when your program performers, your program, your principal investigators, program performers, uh, become aware that your your primary metric of success is transition, then in order to get a good grade, yeah, which means more funding, they don't take a lot of risks. Yeah, and, and programs become uh, incremental in their improvements in terms of capabilities. The technology becomes a small gain over what might be had now, but not. Not the breakthrough gains that you hope for. So, so I think I think 
particularly now from what I read about the focus on innovation and so on and so forth, we're going to come that that idea of transition should not be at the forefront of your programs. I think mm -hmm. rather my preference was always to do these small programs. Mm -hmm. I mean, small in my DOD term it was three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Today, where I'm at Georgia Tech, it's $25,000. Right. <laughs> but small programs, uh, take a risk. Mm -hmm. uh, don't be afraid to take a risk. If you fail uh, on a, a $25,000 program where I am, I'm at $300,000, uh, you're not, you know, not going to be penalized if you, and in, in, inevitably you learn something in the failure. And that many times those programs come back couple years down the road in my experience. If you succeed, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously very productive. The, the other thing I think is, um, so I, I like small programs, but, and I like risk, but the other thing is, uh, when, when you go into somebody and, and you say, okay, I got this great idea and this thing, and you show it to them in slides, or a slide brief or whatever it is. Yeah. In my view, not many people can translate whatever that idea is on a piece of paper into their mind's eye to visualize what you're really talking about. Mm -hmm. So I, I would rather focus on small prototypes where you build a little bit to the point where it can do, even in a primitive level, whatever it is you want it to do, fly, move, analyze, whatever that might be, yeah. sense. And then you... Then you um, you start to show it to people. Don't build the whole system, mm -hmm. but start to show it to people. And and if they start saying, "Oh, well, could it also do this, or could it do that?" Then you know they a are understanding the program and b are buying into it. Yeah. Uh, whereas you've tried to make the whole system, and in the end, as I always used to say, you paint it gray or paint it green, the color doesn't matter. And and the the people you're trying to talk into this program said, "Well, it really would be better black." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that little five percent thing, whatever it is, insignificant, might kill a whole deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So build it to a point where they say they can see it clearly, they can take it, they can see the capability, and then they take it over. A, a, a classic one to me was was uh, undersea vehicles. We invested mm -hmm. uh, with DIA in some large undersea vehicles and. Uh, at one point, uh, so we're doing it, and we had a name for the program. And all of a sudden, the Navy came along and um, took the program over, changed the name, and never asked permission. Yeah, by definition, of success. Yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. Uh, and and uh, so at that point, we were out of my office was out of the big, large amateur UUV business because the Navy had it and was taking a run with it. So. But, but we, we did enough to get the idea out on the street and get it out, and then they took it over and felt that. Exactly, exactly right. Then they believe that it's their idea. So, so I, I think that, that's, that there's some good advice Im embedded in there for what the Department of Defense should do as it seeks to work with more startup, startups and other non-traditional suppliers. Is there any other sort of more explicit advice you have for the DOD? Um, the, 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 we're seeing that the DIO accepted. They've just opened their Boston office. Right. Um, are, are there other things that you think that that uh, the secretary or the deputy secretary or just the, the, the building in general should do to make it easier for startups um, or other non-traditional um, 
uh, providers well, of innovation and new ideas? One of the biggest problems we face, and I think it's probably still a problem today on that current hire, is contracting. Yep. Those guys. And, and, and many of these guys, these companies, don't have the staff and don't have the um, people with the knowledge to get into the, the federal contracting yep. system. So getting, uh, getting, in fact, there were some companies that we never, never could get a deal with because we just couldn't find a way to do that. Yep. So each of these companies we kind of had to work with by hand. Uh, it was not a, okay, you're going to follow this process, you're going to follow this process. Each one was sort of a handcrafted deal to get that mm -hmm. company on board so we could, you know, legally move money to them and all. And that, that, unfortunately, takes time. It takes work, it takes time. Uh, and, um, and it's costly. So uh, anything, in my view, anything you could do to lighten that process, make it easier um, to do, would be, I think, a help. What, one of the help, what, there, there are certainly avenues out there that I think are, are ones that could be used very effectively, other transaction authorities. Yep. Is one uh, that we tried to use on a, couple, on a number of occasions. Challenge was finding a place in the contracting infrastructure of the government that would, would accept and use OTAs. Yep. But certainly there are tools out there. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying we need to make new tools. It's, we just need to figure yeah, out how to use the ones that are there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I recall multiple times in the work that we did together where we had agreed on a project, you had funding available, and we weren't allowed to start because it was a continuing resolution and a new start or all these sorts of things. It was incredibly frustrating. Uh, for everyone, and then uh, we couldn't do anything about it, and you couldn't do anything about it, even though we had common intent. So, um, so, so, so the last question that I have for you, Ben, is as someone who has funded a large number of projects from the Department of Defense and worked with a wide range of startups and other um, interesting organizations, what advice do you have for people running startups, for entrepreneurs, CEOs of, 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 of small and growing businesses, as they're looking to do work with with the department, how would you, yeah, how would you help them uh, think about uh, success? Well, I'm not I'm not really familiar with it, but obviously DIUX is expanding. I, I read the release on DIUX in Boston, which I think is a good thing. Um, but in, in my view, uh, we we used to invest through Incatel, and as part of that, we would get um, uh, emails from Incatel. Pretty much every day, sometimes ten or fifteen a day. I did a, a lot, mm -hmm. uh, and each of these was was what they called meeting notes. It would be a summary of a company that they had met and interviewed, uh, and it would be roughly a page, page and a half on each company. And it would say this company, so and so, was here. How, how many employees? Here's the leadership. Here's the product they're working on. Uh, they might be funded by some investor, uh, and then they'd have some comments on what they thought the whether the pay of the company. Was something that uh, we Incatel customers or Incatel in the Incatel arc, I guess, should be interested in, or uh, did they think it was too early or not in the first place? So, but uh, it, it, it 10 or 15 a day, that and the other endless emails you get in the Pentagon, that's almost more than you can absorb. Yeah. Um, so the lesson, the lesson that I took away from that is that there, there are there have to be more than just one way to skin a cat yep. to find these companies. DIUX is a great start, um, greater, I think, because it has the obvious 
support and engagement of the secretary. Yep. But there, there are probably more companies out there that bear looking at the DIUX alone. So yep. um, we continue to do that. In fact, I had somebody, even though I'm not in the Pentagon and DOD anymore, I had somebody refer me to a company today or earlier this week, and I have a phone conversation with the CEO. It's a four-person company. Yeah. And um, so I'll, I'll, there's, there's nothing in it for me except an interest in uh, seeing that these guys get a fair hearing, uh, that we can run their product to ground and see whether it's of interest to DOD. But um, there's, there's obviously, there's so many out there that you can't touch them. So I think a, a lot of it in, in this case, uh, in these cases, requires, uh, I'll call it hand massaging. Right. Uh, not, and so you have to find that guy in, in the company that can champion it. There, there has to be somebody um, who's willing to take and work with that company on almost a personal basis. It's, many times a guy would call me, and a company would call me, and you know, they said, well, I talked to so-and-so uh, in this office, he told me to talk to so-and-so in this office, he told me to talk to so-and-so in this office. And, yeah. And, and finally they got <laughs> and so the guy's obviously getting a runaround, and you know when that guy calls, he a, a probably doesn't know who to call, right? Uh, so he's trying a number that seems to make sense, and B, um, he's he needs he needs somebody along the line to just say, okay, I'll I'll help you as best I can. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's not magic; it's not a process, but I think you have to have people who are willing to engage with these companies. And oh, by the way, for me. I learned a heck of a lot talking to these companies. That's right. And, and I, I guess the, the advice for, 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 for the startup person is just keep making the calls until you find someone who's actually sure. willing to help you. Yeah. Uh, because if, if you, one of the things I found when I was, I was running a startup is that the, uh, the formal advice that you get is go talk to contracting officers right. and read the BAAs. And like, that's all good. But, but we didn't have any success until we found people who would listen, who, yeah, who, who, would listen, who owned problems and were willing to do stuff. And once we did that, once we found that, then we could work through all the contracting stuff. But until then, it was it was not helpful. So I, I have a call with this company today, four-person company, as I said. Um, and I've been going online like mad, trying to learn about their product and their area. Yep. So at least when the guy starts talking to me, I sound a little bit like... Oh, yeah, 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 I, I get it. I understand, I understand. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, so I think, you know, it's a two-way street. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, but I... I think it's just working with these guys, and I I liked working. Some of them were, some of them were obviously incredibly talented people, and, mm-hmm. and you know, they're kind of laying their life on the line for whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So they deserve our time. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so Ben, thank you for sharing insights from, um, I guess, decades working on this, and 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 for for um, uh, for sort of sharing that wealth of knowledge with others. Um, and we, we, we can wrap it up here. Just end by, in addition to thank you for your time today, thank you for everything you've done for the Navy, for the country, in, 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 in the Pentagon. I do feel obliged to point out to you that you have done the thing of you have retired, but you still have a job. Yes. So it's not complete success, but you are no longer in the Pentagon. So congratulations again for that. Yeah, I do a similar thing now at Georgia Tech. They gave me some money. and I run a competition for junior research scientists and, and engineers at GTRI, and I award $25,000 prizes that they give me for their ideas. And it's competitive, 
my thing is you got to be looking five to ten years into the future, and risk is good. Yeah, does that sound familiar? Exactly. <laughs> always, always take risk. I think that's the lesson. And I'm happy with it. It's good talking to them. They're smarter than I am, so it's a good time. Thanks, Ben. Excellent. Thanks again. To hear more from the National Security Startup Series, go to startups.cnas.org or search for CNAS on iTunes or SoundCloud.